Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, the Trudeau Foundation under scrutiny. I strongly believe that an independent investigation is needed to separate fact from innuendo. The Ethics Committee grills past CEO Morris Rosenberg and prepares to hear from the Prime Minister's brother tomorrow. Coming up, we will speak to our political strategists about what we are learning and whether Ottawa is doing enough to stop China's interference in Canadian affairs. Also, we will speak with Treasury Board President Mona Fortier. How will the deal reach with the Public Sector Alliance influence future deals Ottawa must still negotiate with its other employees? And... The controversial C-11 is now law, but it's being met with more suspicion than praise. Coming up, we will speak to Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez. This is Primetime Politics. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Serapio. Morris Rosenberg is a name that political watchers may remember as he did report on the 2021 federal election. Now, in that report, he concluded that foreign interference did not affect the outcome of the vote. Well, Mr. Rosenberg was in front of the Parliamentary Ethics Committee this afternoon, testifying not as a former civil servant, but as a former CEO of the Pierre Elliott Trudeau Foundation. Members having many questions about the donation accepted by that foundation from businessmen with ties to China, a deal facilitated apparently by the Prime Minister's brother who will appear before the same committee tomorrow. Now, in a moment, we will talk about Alexandre Trudeau, but right now, take a listen to some of the testimony we heard earlier today from Morris Rosenberg. I approve the donation or it wouldn't have gone forward, but the policy doesn't actually require that I put my own signature on a donation agreement. It was felt that, given that the donation was to honor Pierre Trudeau, who opened up diplomatic relations with China, it would be more appropriate for his son to represent the foundation at the ceremony and sign the agreement. This was consistent with the policy on donations in 2016. Well, to talk about this a bit more, we're now joined by former Deputy Prime Minister Sheila Copps, Tim Powers, who is the chair of Summa Strategies, and Melanie Richet, senior consultant at Ernst Cliff Strategies. I welcome to the three of you. Uh, Ms. Ms. Cobbs, I'm going to start with you here because I I do want to set up Alexander Trudeau, who will be testifying tomorrow before the Ethics Committee. Uh, Now, it was the Prime Minister's brother who who really expressed his desire to appear before the committee uh, in that interview with Le Devoir. But is this mistake? Is this a mistake? Rather, he he wants to be making this argument about the Trudeau Foundation, but I, I wonder if this is actually the venue where he'll be heard. Well, it may not be the friendliest venue because obviously the majority on the committee are out to uh, try and make a link that, uh, that frankly, I think he's there to defend the work that he's done for the last decade with uh, uh, the foundation donors and also with the students who've received uh, doctorate degrees, et cetera, et cetera. So he's got a good story to tell. He is a filmmaker himself by background and hopefully he'll be able to weave his story. But I do suspect that There'll be quite a few around the table who don't necessarily want to hear his story and want to make their own film. And it's not going to be positive for him. But I do think that there's also a danger that if they carry it too far, it could blow back on them and maybe uh, allow some balance in this in this debate. 
Uh, Tim, what's your take on it? I wonder if there is any advantage for the foundation or really for the prime minister, for that matter, to hear Sasha Trudeau speak. I like Sheila, Sheila Spillman analogy. I'm sure the Conservatives do want to turn it into the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Um, I, I don't see the advantage of uh, Sasha Trudeau being there. I, I, I'll give Sheila the point that no doubt he is passionate about the work of the Trudeau Foundation, and it's certainly something I think their family has had great pride about. Uh, but I think it's gone past that at the moment. So him being there at, at the very minimum gives the Conservatives and, and those who are frustrated with everything that's happened with the, the government's management of the Trudeau, Trudeau Foundation story more of an opportunity to t get at that story again. Uh, whenever somebody with the name of Trudeau fairly or unfairly appears before a committee, it's going to generate news. And th those news links will be driven towards the challenges at that foundation. So. Uh, I, I'm sure that passion is driving him, but politics is what uh, is going to be played out tomorrow. You know, Melanie, uh, Ms. Copps outlined the fact that this committee is dominated by opposition MPs. Uh, talk to us about the kind of scrutiny that Sasha Trudeau does face when he when he testifies tomorrow. For sure, he, he, he's going to be up against, uh, like like uh, Ms. Copps has said, and like you just said, against opposition MPs. So um, is there actually going to be uh, an ability to get to the truth and to get to, to you know, transparency for people? Um, is, is he actually going to be able to lay out the way that he sees this um, uh, play out? Um, I, I, I don't know. We haven't really seen uh, opposition MPs use committees in a super strategic way. Um, it's usually to kind of punch each other um, and and to, to, you know, mudsling a little bit, um, whereas people at home are really looking for the truth behind this. They're really trying to figure out what happened and what we can do to, um, to not have this foreign interference happen in the future. So I don't know how uh, his appearance tomorrow helps that. I also would, would be remiss to say that the prime minister has been working since he's been elected in 2015 to not have family members appear at committee um, and, and him kind of putting his hand up and saying uh, that he wants to do that. Um, goes against all of that work and also I think kind of sets a precedent where now it is okay for family members to be invited and to be questioned by opposition members, which I don't think is in is in the interest of, of really any uh, government, whether it be the Liberal government or whoever's government next. Well, of course, we're going to watch uh, that testimony very closely tomorrow. But, you, you know, the, the, the whole issue with the Trudeau Foundation, of course, uh, has to do with that donation, with links to businessmen uh, from the People's Republic of China. And right now, there's another issue, the revelation that China's state security was actually targeting relatives of Conservative MP Michael Chong. Now, that operation was apparently aided by a Chinese diplomat posted here in Canada. You know, Ms. Copps, uh, Conservatives are accusing Liberals of knowing about this and doing nothing. Is there any way the prime minister did not know this was happening? Well, I, I mean, obviously the operations of uh, the security service aren't necessarily always brought to the prime minister's office. So I would say that there's probably a very good possibility he didn't know. And if you saw Mr. Mendicino in the house today, Mr. Mendicino in the house, he basically said they've, they've started getting briefings more recently. But I know when, when I was in politics, uh, we used to get um, off-the-record briefings from uh, uh, Margaret Bloodworth and people from CSIS, and usually they didn't even use names. Uh, and our uh, view as politicians was that this is a matter for the police and for the RCMP and not a matter for us. So he wouldn't be the person talking to Michael Chong or to his office. That would have been 
the responsibility of the um, the RCMP or, or the uh, security establishment figures who think his family is under threat. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim, what do you make of the issue? Because certainly the, the government's taking a battering over this in the House. Well, no surprise they're taking a battering over it. And I think if we've learned anything over the last number of, of weeks and months, there is, a, to put it politely, Michael, an unhealthy tension between some elements of the security service and the sitting government. Uh, and that continues to play itself out. That maybe is the greater concern in this whole story, uh, despite um, what uh, is potentially happening to, to Mr. Chong. So I don't think the Liberals are going to win the benefit of the doubt on this one, even though, as Sheila points out, um, there may be legitimacy to their argument, but, but I think that legitimacy has long since faded uh, because of what we've seen on the front pages of the Globe and Mail and what we've heard from global television about how they uh, see our people in the security services see this government being asleep at the switch on certain aspects of national security as it relates to the Chinese. Mm-hmm. Uh, Melanie, what, what do you make of this issue? Because again, uh, the conservatives are, are, are saying that the, the, the government knew about this, but right now there's pushback from the government saying, no, we're just looking into it right now. Right. To to Tim's point, had the government actually gone ahead of this when this first broke into the news and said, listen, this looks concerning, we're going to look into it um, and we're going to do everything we can to to protect our elections going forward. I think we'd be in a very different position um, right now. And I think the government would have probably earned a lot more goodwill than they, than they currently have. But but as it, it took them so long to even address that this was a legitimate problem and, and address the fact that they needed to take a look at it. So now that we're here and we're hearing this news about, about um, Michael Chong, it's hard not to, for like a regular person watching at home, it's hard for them not to be like, well, obviously they knew. They've been, you know, dodging this answer all along. Um, so, so had they gone ahead of it, had they, uh, you know, taken it seriously from the get-go, I think they they would be better positioned to come out and say, um, to, to Sheila's point, that, you know, this isn't something that the PMO would have dealt with. This isn't something that the prime minister himself would, would have had to address. Um, but, but again, uh, hindsight and um, hopefully for the next time they're able to get ahead of it instead of uh, continuously um, being behind and not responding in a way that, that really... Um, makes Canadians confident that they're taking this seriously and that they're doing everything they can to uh, to assure the, the protection of our, of our elections. Mm-hmm. I have uh, less than a minute here, and Ms. Cops, I'm going to end it with you, actually. What would... And say that, you know, when you're in politics, I remember at one point I had a man who came to my mother's office and threatened to stab, to kill me with an Uzi, and I had to call the police myself, and they said, well, this isn't a political issue, it's the RCMP. This is for real. Um, he ended up going to court and was deemed um, mentally mentally ill, and he had previously stabbed a reporter. And I was told, this is a police matter, you stay out of it. So there's lots of threats that happen to parliamentarians across the board. The relationship between the police and parliament is also um, mis- mystifying even to parliamentarians. So it's not like they don't want to do anything, but if you responded to every claim and threat that went off on every parliamentarian, that would be all you'd be doing. Well, with that, uh, that is time. I really appreciate that insight, uh, Ms. Copps. Thank you for it. Uh, so Sheila Copps, Tim Powers, Melanie Riche, thank you for joining us this evening. Uh, we'll speak again soon. Thank you. Thank you.
Federal employees are back on the job this week as the 12-day strike is now over and the two sides come together on a number of issues. They include higher wages, telework considerations, seniority and outside contractors as they affect job stability. Now yesterday we did speak with the PSAC president and tonight we will hear the government side. Well, we are happy to welcome to the program today the Treasury Board President, Mona Fauci. Madame Fauci, thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. Listen, now we've been mulling over the deal ever since it was announced, and we're looking at these wage increases. We've seen from, from you know, the government perspective, the ability to keep telework out of the collective agreement, mm -hmm. the tentative agreement as, uh, as such. Mm -hmm. So when you look at it, is this a win for the government? I think it's a win for Canadians. I think it's a win for public servants. And I believe that we found uh, the right balance to a fair, uh, competitive and uh, reasonable uh, deal. And uh, I'm glad actually that uh, we announced uh, that we have a four-year uh, deal, which gives uh, really some stability uh, for the public service. And also uh, we have a line of sight on mm -hmm. uh, what's next. Well, when you say the balance, I know that there's the number balance that you're looking at as well as how you how you meet the, the demands being made by the union. But as one that really was overseeing the negotiations from the government mm -hmm. side, what achieves balance for you? What defines that for you? So imagine when we started, 570 demands on the table. That's why I think that we had a lot of work done. Um, and uh, we started last year, and unfortunately, after our first offer, a PSAC chose to leave the table. And it took up until, I'll say, January, February, to kind of get back to, the, are we ready to have, you know, back to the deal and we chose mediation and that's why April 2nd we started again. And uh, I, both teams work really, really hard and I think there was a lot uh, that we needed to make sure we were looking uh, at a good uh, increase uh, for public servants, but also there were different issues that were being dealt with. And now uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to report that there is balance, there is um, stability, and uh, I think the responsibility that I had as president of the Treasury Board is to make sure that it was a win-win a, a for public servants, but also for Canadians, and that was my focus uh, the whole time. Well, you, you talk about what you consider a fair wage increase for, for you know, the employees of the federal government, but from the onset, they were making the argument, the union, making the argument that really what their workers want to do was make sure their salaries were keeping up with inflation. Mm -hmm. Now, you didn't meet their demand as they defined inflation. And I wonder uh, about the philosophy behind that, because here we are in a country where there is this increasing wage mm -hmm. gap mm -hmm. between the top earners and the middle earners, not mm -hmm. to mention low-income earners. Mm -hmm. Was that not a consideration? If the members are concerned about inflation, the cost of living, and making sure they're not falling behind. Was that not a priority for you? Well, the first thing is as the largest employer of Canada, I had to make sure that we had uh, a balance. And if you look at other provinces of what they have as negotiation or agreements with their public servants, how also, uh, you know, the private sector, we had to balance things. And when we started, we were in a certain position. And then uh, the Public Interest Commission shared on February 17th their report, which recommended, you know, the, um, 
the the nine percent over a three years, which at the time wasn't three three three. Some mm -hmm. people thought it was that, but it was one point five, four point five, and and three. I think my math is good. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, and and we were following, you know, uh, mm -hmm. the inflation, but. Um, not the the same amount, but we had to make sure that we were also looking at what was happening on the ground across the pro, uh, across the country. So we found that middle ground, and we also offered uh, during the mediation uh, the uh, in line with the recommendation of the Public Interest Commission, which is a third party uh, mm -hmm. that had studied it and recommended us to go there. So we did. And then um, I think that we, and that's where I think both uh, win uh, on the fourth year, uh, the idea of getting that stability, which also aligns with the inflation uh, going down. Mm -hmm. So I think that we have uh, the right place, and I believe that uh, public servants should be uh, happy with uh, this uh, tentative deal. They yeah. need to ratify it, of course, but uh, looking forward uh, to see uh, the ratification. Okay, so reflective of what is out in the environment. I'm wondering then, from the other perspective, because again, telework is not part of this collective agreement, but you've essentially committed uh, managers within the government to, to speak to individual employees and their requests, and to balance out the requests to work from home. And, and the federal government, the at, uh, well, upwards tele of yeah, sorry, telework up is not just a question of working from home. I think we have to think that it's more. Uh, you can be working from another uh, office, uh, another destination. It's. I think that where a lot want to, of course, uh, work from home, they have and they will continue to do so up to three days uh, a week. The telework directive has not been revised since 1993. So that's what we're committing to. Work with the union to look at, let's revise this telework directive and put it up to date to post-pandemic, uh, let's say, era. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's what we will be doing. And also we chose, uh, because there's different departments, they work differently, the culture of the team, uh, the services they offer, to have a mechanism that will enable uh, somebody from the union and the manager to discuss and look at preoccupations to see if there's a better outcome. But it's non-grievable. It's just to try to find solutions because we're discovering this telework post-pandemic, and I think there's different opportunities to uh, to welcome but, but those the, conversations. Which, which I, I take it because the nature of the work is changing, but mm -hmm. you have set this benchmark now where your employees, those attached with the PSAC, can, can telework upwards of three days a week. Mm -hmm. Have you set perhaps a difficult precedent for private industry? Because if that is what such a large public sector employer is giving to their employees, have you not essentially painted private companies into providing the same for their employees? No, I would challenge the fact that actually uh, we looked at what's happening in the private sector, look at what's happening in other provinces, and we are, you know, uh, really looking at the, an average of what uh, the private sector for many companies are doing and also uh, the public sector in, in other provinces and even municipalities. Now, we know that many frontline workers will work uh, in, uh, you know, the workplace, uh, and we have to respect that. I think that we have an opportunity to look at the 
best of both worlds. What can be done working either from home or for remote work, or again, uh, what can be done in the office, and there are those benefits that will, at the end of the day, make sure that we offer the best services to Canadians, and I think that's the balance that we're trying to find. Okay, I have less than a minute, but mm -hmm. I do have to ask you, because you yourself noted during your news conference yesterday that this negotiation with the PSAC is just one of many yes. to come. So does this deal establish a baseline for other negotiations? The, the telework aspect, the, 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 the essentially the, the, the line in terms of percentage increase, is this now the deal that you're going to bring to the other unions as well? I, I believe so. So we had two done before, one in November and the other one uh, just shy of beginning of April. And uh, now with these four, we're, we're, we have a trend line, I think, that is uh, demonstrating it's over 120,000 workers for the four we just signed. And then before it was around 8,000 when you put it all together. So it gives a, a good trend uh, to continue. And I believe that it's a fair, uh, reasonable uh, deal that is there and also respectful of uh, the process that we've just been through. Bonaforte, really appreciate the time and uh, congratulations you. by, uh, it's now over, at least this part well, for you. Well, that part. There's 20 more to do, though. <laughs> thank you so, so we'll much. So we'll be in connection, <laughs> yes, so, we will. but thank you for that. Thank you. The government's bill to amend the Broadcasting Act received royal assent last week, a bill that will require streaming services to support and carry more Canadian content. Known as C-11, this new law has been praised by TV and film producers, but criticized by many online content creators, not to mention online companies like TikTok and YouTube. We're now joined by the Minister for Canadian Heritage, Pablo Rodriguez. Minister, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Listen, I want to begin here uh, with a headline, and this is actually from the Globe and Mail yesterday. I'm going to read the headline to you. It says uh, about C-11's passage. Mm -hmm. Crowd displeaser. As online streaming act becomes law, just about everyone is unhappy. Uh, I want to begin with that because I, I was wondering what your reaction is to it. Here you are spending all this time to get C-11 passed. It is now passed. It's now received royal assent. But still more suspicion than praise for the law. What's your reaction to that? Well, that's one paper, one opinion. I disagree with, with what's said there because, I've, I mean, if you look at the article across the country, there's huge support for this, for this bill because the, the Broadcasting Act has not been amended since 1991. Many governments tried it before but never since 1991. 1991, we were not going on the internet. We would listen music on our Walkmans, you know, the little yellow box, and we would go to Blockbuster to rent movies. So I think it's a huge achievement, and people from the music, television, uh, movie sector are very happy. Uh, and so, and that's true. Like we, we are hearing praise from more traditional media, like TV, like film, like screenwriters, but when you talk about new media, like TikTok and YouTube, they're not happy about this, nor are their content generators. What do you say to that criticism? Well, th this bill is, is very simple. Sometimes you see things that are not there. The bill is asking two things, right, to the streamers. It's asking Disney, Netflix, and those streamers that we love, you know, the Prime and others, to, to contribute to Canadian culture. That's the first thing. The second thing, we're asking them to showcase more of, of who we are, what we are, our stories, are a little bit more of our music maybe on Spotify, a little bit more of our television and movies on the other, on the other streamers. That's, that's it. 
That's all we're asking. Uh, some people things are, see things are not on the bill, but it is what it is. Well, I guess part of the fear here is, and this is really more with new media, because uh, as you know, algorithms determine so much of what we see online. It, it gives us not only what we're looking for, but it is also uh, suggesting uh, other media, other files within, uh, within an environment that you might be interested in. And I guess the concern is, if the algorithm is based ge with geography, therefore bring more Canadian content to Canadian users, if other countries followed suit, it might limit uh, Canadian content drivers and creators to, to actually go beyond our, our country. Those, uh, the, those algorithms might, for example, disadvantage Canadians outside of the Canadian environment. What do you say to that? Uh, that's if YouTube decides to do that. I mean, the, the, the only person, the only people that control YouTube algorithms are the YouTube people. I don't know why they would, they would do that. Um, but, but I guess if you're trying but, to feature more Canadian content on it, if they yeah. change their algorithms to feature more Canadian content based on the geography of the user. To. They don't have to. It's a decision. I'm interested in the outcome, not in the process. So if they want to change our algorithm, they can do that. But they don't have to. It's not in the bill, and no one can force them to do that. But they can also uh, put more Canadian content on their web page. They can be creative and buy advertising by the side of their own and say, hey, this great new Canadian movie is out. Go watch it. They, they decide on how they do it. I want to see more Canadian content. The process is up to them. Mm -hmm. Now, there was also a concern that this might actually have overreach and in affect the individual uh, content creators, uh, user-generated content that, that are posted onto these kind of websites. But you don't think that's going to be an issue here? No. Even though the Senate wanted to pass an amendment that would actually make a distinction, say it would not apply no, to them. But that amendment had a loophole in it. But think about it. First, I say we're not interested in looking at the, the content of creators. I mean, even if it's great, we're among the best in the world, but it's not what we're looking for. But even if we were, how do we do that? Did you ask the questions to these people? How would we do that? There's millions and millions of things uploaded on the internet every day. Who would be watching that? Someone at the government, the CRTC? It's impossible. So not only are we not interested in watching and passing comments on the content, there's no way we could do it anyways. Mm -hmm. But it does, for example, apply to, as you just said, uh, streamers like Disney+, Plus, like Netflix, mm -hmm. uh, Apple, uh, uh, as well as Prime. Are you willing to expand the definition of what qualifies as Canadian content in order to satisfy the, 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 the intent of this, uh, well, this law? The next step, now that the, the, the bill became law, is, is for me to, to draft uh, uh, a policy directive to the CRTC, and in, in that directive, I will ask the CRTC to look at the actual definition of Canadian content and to modernize it. So we'll see what they come up to. But a lot of things are very important. For example, the the, the IP, the, the 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 fact that we need to hire more uh, Canadian people, being actors, directors, technicians. Uh, we want to help. Our industry, and this is what this, this bill is doing. Mm -hmm. Now, at the end of the day, when you say that your hope is, or when you write that directive to the CRTC, that modernizing Canadian content and those regulations will be a part of it. So what are you looking for? What, what is your hope uh, as you consider that document that you send over to the CRTC? Well, that document is to, is to explain a little bit to the CRTC how some things should be interpreted or asking them to do certain things. For example, again, modernizing CRTC. I'll be more specific, saying that also that this excludes user-generated content uh, because it's already enough specific, specific, but I will detail it more in, in that. Should reassure some people, those that need to be assured, um, and, and things like that. So once I, I, I draft 
my, my policy, my directive, uh, then I will be consulting Keynes, then I'll send the, the vinyl version to the CRTC who will produce the uh, draft the regulations. Now, as you said, the intent of this is to have more more Canadian production, more yeah. Canadian eyeballs on Canadian production. Have you put a dollar figure on it for, for, for this new law? What type, how much new production are we looking at? What type of cultural gain will this country have? Well, there's different ways to contribute. This is what we'll be exploring. I wanted this to be flexible. Why? Because the streamers don't have the same business model, right? So Disney doesn't have the same business model on Netflix and et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, in, in some cases, uh, the company could decide and say, you know what, I'm going to hire more people, more Canadian people, invest more in Canada, have more productions. In other cases, a company could say, you know what, no, I prefer put some money in the fund. So the important thing is here is to be flexible enough so that all of them contribute. And you know what, they will contribute because the same way at the, at the beginning, people, Netflix and Disney and others were saying, oh, you know what, um, if we can avoid this. Or, but now I think they understand that this is where we're going. There was absolutely no law to regulate the whole industry doesn't make any sense. No, this will regulate them um, and in a very reasonable way. Pablo Rodriguez, really appreciate the time today. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. And that is our program for this Tuesday evening. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, thank you for watching. Up next, Les Sociales avec Esteve Jean. We'll see you again tomorrow.